Amen. Go ahead and grab your seat. And I invite you to take up your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 11. Uh, We're going to start in verse 55. John chapter 11, verse 55. Uh, For those of you who may be visiting with us, uh, uh, given it being Palm Sunday and Easter next Sunday, my name is Mike Keserowski. We've never had the privilege of meeting. I serve as the lead pastor here at FAC. And I'm thrilled that you joined us today. And I would be even more thrilled if we don't know each other, if you'd come up and say hi and introduce yourself. Uh, It's an open invitation after every service. I'm usually hanging out up front. Uh, I just want to meet new people. And and, um, if we don't know each other, uh, help me out by just making yourself known. Um, once again, we'll be in John 11, verse 55. As has already been mentioned this morning, just a reminder that we will be having a Good Friday service uh, on Friday at 7 p.m. Um, I would encourage you to attend. We will be sharing in the Lord's Supper together as a church family. Uh, typically, it's our pattern to uh, do communion on the first Sunday of the month. Now, with Easter falling on the first Sunday of the month and having celebrated it just the previous uh, Friday, we're actually going to uh, push communion out to the second Sunday of the month for April. Uh, I tell you that just so you know uh, what the next couple of weeks are going to look like, uh, that we will have communion in April, but it'll be on the 11th and we'll celebrate Jesus's resurrection as we do every Sunday. Um, but particularly on Easter. So once again, I hope that you'll join us for that as well next week. Um, For this week, let's turn to God's word. Uh, I'm going to do something a little funky here. Uh, We're going to start in John chapter 11. I'm going to read three verses, uh, verse 55 to 57. Um, And then I'm going to skip over a a couple passages, and we're going to jump down to uh, John chapter 12, verse 12. And you can follow along and try to keep up as I read. But uh, John chapter 11, verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. And now jumping down to verse 12 of chapter 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that as we turn into your inspired word, that the Holy Spirit would illuminate the scriptures to us and enable us to think clearly and to respond accordingly. We believe your written word is the ultimate standard of truth and our final authority. And we also confess that these words describe who you are and who your son is and who your spirit is. 
that we are not left to speculate or mindlessly wonder, but rather by your truth, you have revealed to us exactly uh, who you are, who Jesus is and what he came to do. In light of this, would we be attentive and alert in our time today? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If this is the first time you've ever picked up this story and read it, uh, it, it might come as uh, an odd scene. You, you, you might read this and say, I don't understand what is happening here. There's some context that I need. And it's true because we've really parachuted right into the middle of a narrative. There, there's been an ongoing story here, and we've landed right in the middle in this uh, city of Jerusalem. And in this city, there is a buzz uh, around the city. The, the rumor mill is swirling all around, uh, all in regards uh, to this man named Jesus. And in order to understand what the buzz is about, we actually need to turn the clock back on the story. We actually need to take a look at Jerusalem's history, uh, a broader view of it, because to, the, the history of Jerusalem lo- looms large over this narrative. To, to understand the history of the city will actually help us clearly understand what all the hoopla is about in the city. And so we set the clocks back uh, roughly a thousand years. Uh, once upon a time, there was a king and his name was David. And David led the Israelites. He was on the throne of Israel. And David at this point has just conquered the city Jerusalem from the Jebusites. And he has declared that Jerusalem is the capital city of Israel. But David doesn't want to stop there. He doesn't want Jerusalem just to be the political capital of Israel. He also wants it to be the religious capital of Israel. And so he ushers in uh, what was known as the Ark of the Covenant, which represents God's presence. He ushers it into Jerusalem. And then he goes on to tell God, he prays to God and tells him that he would like to build a permanent house in Jerusalem for God's presence, for the Ark of the Covenant. David wants to build God a temple. And God actually responds to David through a prophet saying, you know, David, that's nice and all. I appreciate the sentiment. It's very cute. But you have to know that you're not going to build me a house. I'm actually going to build you a house. I'm going to build you to be exact and more accurately, David, I'm going to build you guys a kingdom. I'm going to build you a dynasty. And how, David, am I going to do this? How am I going to build this kingdom? Well, I'm going to build it through your royal line. There will be a king from your offspring, one of your descendants. I will raise up and I will establish a throne on which he will sit forever. And from that moment on, this theme of kingship constantly reappears throughout the history of Israel. The Israelites anticipated the day that a righteous king, an anointed one, a Messiah, would take the throne and never vacate it. But herein lies the problem in Israel's history. 
And that a thousand year period between when this promise was made to David and the first century where we are in the story, Israel is constantly under siege and constantly under foreign oppression. In that millennium long period, the Israelites are occupied at some point by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks. And now in our text, they're occupied currently by the Romans. And through all of this, the Israelites would go back to David and remember that promise that God made to them a thousand years ago and probably feel as though something just isn't adding up. Yet they were hopeful that someday this king that God promised would show up and claim his rightful place on the throne in Jerusalem. And he would liberate Israel once and for all from all foreign and pagan oppression. The reason there's such a buzz in Jerusalem in this text that we read a moment ago is because there's this man who comes from the city of Nazareth. His name is Jesus, and he's done some fairly remarkable things. Apparently, he can raise people from the dead. Maybe, perhaps, he's the one true king that God promised from a thousand years ago and beyond. Let's take a look at our story together. I've already given you the historical context. That backdrop of understanding, that anticipation for a king is necessary to understand the story. But I also want to look at the specific context. What's actually happening in this story? That's why I read from verses 55 to 57, because it paints the setting for us. It tells us what's going on in this moment. And we're, we're told in verse 55 that the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem uh, before the Passover to purify themselves. The Passover, it's a Jewish festival that celebrates the exodus from Egypt. It celebrates the Israelites' freedom from slavery to the Egyptians all those years ago. It was one of three pilgrimage festivals which required the Jewish people to actually travel to Jerusalem so that they could observe the feasts together. And it was required by their law that if you want to celebrate Passover, you had to ritually purify yourself. And so that's why all of these people are there, right? There's a mass influx of people into Jerusalem to purify themselves so that they can celebrate Passover. That's the details, but the details are actually included. John doesn't care much to get into the discussion of what they were doing as Instead, he's just trying to explain to us why there's so many people there. There are a considerable amount of people in Jerusalem at this moment, much more uh, above and beyond the normal population. There's scholars that actually believe that Jerusalem's population would swell to at least double, if not triple, uh, the population during Passover. There were so many people that would come to Jerusalem that many of them would actually have to stay in the countryside outside of the city. And so it's important for us in this passage to understand the significance of these crowds. Right? In our culture, 
whenever you get any kind of event with increased crowds, what will you notice? You'll notice, you'll notice increased law enforcement. Why is that? Well, because we know that with large crowds, there's risk. There's risk involved when you get enough people in one place. I think I've heard the quote before, never underestimate the power of, uh, the quote is the power of stupid people in large numbers, right? But this is a similar sentiment, right? That we know crowds are capable of doing dangerous things. And the larger the crowd, the higher chance of something going wrong. And so here in Jerusalem at Passover, the Jewish leadership is probably already feeling the anxiety and the tension uh, given the mass influx of people. But then on top of that, there are these rumors about this man named Jesus. We didn't read it, but right before these opening verses, Jesus brings his uh, close friend Lazarus out of the grave. He calls out to Lazarus and Lazarus walks out of the tomb. And that has people talking. The Jewish leaders, having heard about Lazarus, actually consider this a threat. I want you to look at John chapter 11, verse 47. This is how the Jewish leaders responded to the news that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. John writes, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. So, so, so far in the verse, it seems like he's a religious rival, right? They don't want people believing in Jesus, but why? That's the rest of the verse. Everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You see, here is what the issue was for the Jewish leaders. As I mentioned earlier, Israel is under Roman occupation and the Pharisees held this view that even though this occupation was oppressive, it could get a lot worse. They thought if we're not careful here, if we don't behave ourselves, essentially, Rome could come in and wipe our nation off the map. If these large crowds accept Jesus as this anointed king, this Messiah who brings liberation and causes an uproar, the Roman armies are going to come in and they're going to suppress the entire movement and the entire situation. And it's not going to be pretty. And so in the, in the Pharisees' minds, Jesus isn't just a religious rival uh, in this situation. He's actually a political threat. And so right before Passover, they make their intentions very clear to try and calm the situation or have a handle, if you will, on the situation. They tell the people, if Jesus shows his face, he will be arrested on spot. We will take him into custody because he's an insurrectionist. He's trouble. He's disturbing the public order. And we cannot stand for that. However, there's another school of thought in first century Judaism at the time that was different than how the Pharisees felt. There is a large group of the Jewish population who are very, very passionate about their nation. 
And they're very passionate about their heritage and their land. And while they will agree with the Pharisees theologically, they're all Jewish. What these people consider, though, is that a foreign pagan occupation of the Holy Land of Israel is actually an insult to the one true God. And any kind of acceptance to Roman occupation was actually high treason against the one true God. With this mindset, the Roman occupation must not be patiently endured, as the Pharisees might suggest, but rather we should violently resist it if we are capable. And what do these zealots, if you will, need to possibly stand a chance against the almighty Roman Empire? They need a king. They need a Messiah, which means anointed one. They need a liberator who is going to come and lead them into battle and come out victorious as God has promised all those years ago. We have to understand that because of the events leading up to Passover, Palm Sunday is a powder keg of a situation, right? This this thing could explode at any moment. You've got two narratives developing that are at odds with one another. You've got a big group of people that are saying, Jesus is our guy and he's gaining steam. And then you've got another group of people that are saying, no, He's dangerous and we need to handle him. It's a dangerous scene because you essentially have two locomotives gaining momentum, going very fast, and they are on a crash course against each other. We know that one way or another, there will be a showdown and it's about to get ugly. And so this leaves the crowds a week before Passover curious wondering if Jesus is bold enough to come to Jerusalem for Passover when everyone knows that there's a warrant out for his arrest. They embrace the gossip of the city and say, certainly he wouldn't show his face. Would he? I don't know. Maybe. For the reader, the suspense mounts. And we find ourselves asking the question, will Jesus show up to the party? Is he going to show his face? And then we skip down to John chapter 12, verse 12, and we find out that he does. He does show up in public. And so what's going to happen? What is this going to turn into? Let's take a look at it and see what happens. We, we actually read of a crowd's reaction. Right? We read that there is a crowd of people who heard that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem and they heard about his miracle with Lazarus. So they gather around him and then they do something a little bit odd and unusual. Right? They go in and grab these palm branches uh, and start bringing them. And we know from other texts that they actually lay it down uh, on the street. And even the, the, some of them are waving them, right? They go and grab these palm branches. It's peculiar to us because first of all, we don't have a palm tree within about a thousand miles uh, of Erie. And so some of us might not even know what that looks like. Second, grabbing foliage to greet somebody coming into a city is just a weird thing. And that's like, nobody here would do that. 
And so what's happening here? Understanding this act, it's it's actually a a symbolic act of them grabbing the palm branches actually helps us understand the context of the passage as a whole. Other than palm trees being very uh, common in Jerusalem, there is a historical significance to them in the nation. So it's time for another history lesson. Let's turn the clocks back again. Back in the second century BC, there was an event that occurred called the Maccabean Revolt where a group of Jewish rebels recaptured Jerusalem from a king, King Antiochus IV from the Seleucid Empire. He occupied Jerusalem. They recaptured the temple. And when they recaptured the temple, they celebrated and they rededicated the temple in 164 BC after the revolt. And palm branches were actually used as a part of the celebration as a part of this military conquest. Even if you were to um, fast forward past this passage, there's a couple of wars that happen with Rome and the Jewish people. And during that time, the Jewish people stamped um, images of a palm branch on their currency, on their coins. And so the palm branches are a national symbol for Israel, which actually represented military conquest. It reminds me of 10 years ago when America's number one enemy for at least the last century, Osama bin Laden was captured and killed in action. This was a military conquest for the USA. And when the president announced this news, there were thousands upon thousands of people that flocked the streets in big cities. And what were they waving? American flags. Because we just had a significant military conquest. And we were proud in that moment to be Americans. For these people in our story that gathered to escort Jesus into Jerusalem, They are waving and laying down on the ground a national symbol. One commentator writes that the palm branches may have signified the people's expectation of imminent national liberation. That they were expecting Jesus to come in and liberate them from Rome. And if that's not enough, if we're not convinced uh, that this is the case based on the palm branches alone, the idea and the theme is further betrayed by what they begin chanting. And it says that they were crying out or shouting out. It's a word of praise. It's Hosanna, which is an Aramaic word that means save us now. Save us now. Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It does carry what we would call some messianic undertones, But for the most part in this context, this is a common greeting to any of the pilgrims that would come uh, into the temple for worship. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If you were Jewish and you were walking to the temple, you would hear that phrase and they'd be referring to you. It's a typical welcome. And so you think, well, there's nothing really special about this, right? There's nothing significant out of their mouths until you keep reading. They, they, they don't just chant that. They chant Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king 
of Israel, even the king of Israel. Now that's different. Jesus in this moment is no longer just an ordinary pilgrim who's come to worship at the temple. No, this is a confession among the people of Jesus's kingship. In this moment, they are declaring Jesus as their king. They are, they are greeting a national liberator. They want Jesus to come in and liberate them from Roman oppression. This is how the crowd reacts to Jesus's arrival, what, what they do. And you might wonder, the Pharisees issued a warrant for Jesus's arrest, but he made his face known. Why didn't they arrest him? Well, because of this crowd. Right? The Pharisees knew, boy, if we try and arrest him right now, this powder keg is going to blow up. And so they wait, they bide their time based on the crowd's reaction. Now, we also get a bit here about what Jesus did. How did Jesus react? But before we look at how Jesus reacts, what he did, it's equally important to recognize what Jesus didn't do, right? This, Believe it or not, this actually isn't the first time that the Israelites have tried to uh, take Jesus and make him a king of Israel by force around Passover. It happened one other time also around Passover. Right? It happened one other time in his ministry, and it's important to note the difference between the two events. Back in John chapter 6, Jesus is preaching, and the crowds grow hungry, and he takes this young boy's lunchbox, which consists only of five small little uh, loaves of bread and two measly fish, and Jesus miraculously feeds uh, 5,000 grown men. And from this, the crowd recognizes Jesus as the prophet who was promised to come into the world. They're saying he's the one that we've been promised uh, about from a thousand years ago. Now take a look at John 6.15 and what Jesus says or what, how he reacts. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. What's the difference between what happens in John 6 and what happens here in John 12? In John 6, when they try to make him king, Jesus actually rejects it. He he, he doesn't play along with them. In John 12, though, in the triumphal entry, he doesn't reject it. He doesn't deny kingship. In a sense, in John 6, Jesus doesn't affirm what the crowds are trying to do. But here in John 12, Jesus does affirm what the crowds shout out. There's another passage of the triumphal entry, one of the other gospel accounts, right? The Pharisees actually call on Jesus to rebuke the people. And Jesus responds by saying, no, I'm not going to rebuke them. Because if they were silent, the rocks would cry out their praises. And so there's this moment of Jesus absolutely is affirming them in their shouts of his kingship, in their declaration of their kingship. In this moment, Jesus says, I am your king. I am your liberator. I will save you. But it's going to look much different than you can even comprehend. Which actually brings us to what Jesus 
does do. What, what doesn't he do? He doesn't rebuke their confessions of kingship. What does Jesus do? In verse 14, he rides in on a donkey. Once again, in our culture, in our context, you're thinking, what? <laughs> what's, what's the big deal about him riding in on a donkey? What's the significance of this? And it carries a lot of significance because it actually fulfills a certain prophecy uh, about Jesus. And then John goes on to quote the specific prophecy in the very next verse, verse 15. The prophecy quoted is from Zechariah 9.9. But in order to understand the significance of the donkey, we also need to know Zechariah 9.10 as well. We need to read it in context. So let me read both verses for you. Zechariah the prophet writes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak Peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. I would have read the entirety of, of, of Zechariah 9 if we had time, because it's helpful to us. But the entirety of Zechariah 9, including the first eight verses that we didn't read, is actually a prophecy about two different kings. The first eight verses talk about a king that absolutely ravaged Israel. It wasn't a good king. It was a king that they needed to fear. It was a king that made them panic. It's actually believed that Alexander Great, the, the Great is the king referenced in the first part of Zechariah 9 in those first eight verses. And we know that his empire was founded on war and it was based on bloodshed and tyranny which is what the first eight verses of Zechariah 9 describe. You can read those on your own time. But then we come to verse 9 in that prophecy, which we did read, and we get a much different picture of a different king. And Zechariah is saying, you should rejoice that this king is coming to you because he is righteous and he is able to save. This is a cause for celebration. And then the, Zechariah, the prophet, contrasts the coming king with the previous king that he just described. He says, this king is going to be different. He's going to come in, not on a war horse, but a donkey. And then, specifically in Jerusalem and its surrounding area, this king will lead what, in what's basically a disarmament program. But he says, I will cut off the chariot, and I will cut off the war horse, and I will cut off the battle bow, and I will speak peace to the nations. Those three things, the chariot, the war horse, the battle bow, it really represents the whole arsenal used in ancient warfare. And so what the prophet is saying is there's going to be peace. There isn't going to be war because all of the tools and utensils and resources you use for war, this king is actually going to get rid of. He's going to cut them all off. And so what this prophecy implies is that this coming king will come and he will establish his kingdom, but not by force, not by picking and taking up arms, not by war or conquest, 
It will be by bloodshed, but in a different way. This king will establish his kingdom through humble peace. Jesus in this moment, back in our passage, accepts kingship, but on his own terms, sitting on a donkey, which symbolized peace. If he had come in on a war horse, that would have sent a completely different message to the people. What he's doing here is challenging the people's perception of who this king is and what he has come to do. They had their own ideas of what this Messiah would look like. But Jesus, without rejecting the claims of kingship, does reject the military and the the political associations that the people of Jerusalem have assumed. Yet they wave those palms with national pride, expecting a king that they don't even recognize. This is a familiar story that many of you probably have heard and know. Uh, One commentator describes the story as a pure, unblemished celebration of Jesus. When we think about Palm Sunday today, we think of it as a, as a happy day, right? As a, a day with flowers that have sprung in new spring dresses. And uh, perhaps the, the emotional feeling that you get when you think of, of Palm Sunday as one of joy and energy and excitement and celebration. And maybe you, you know, have those nostalgic memories when you were uh, younger, growing up in a church where they would parade the children, the cute little kids through the worship center and they'd be waving their palms reenacting the scene and it just brings this warm and fuzzy feeling of nostalgia as you remember it. Yet while Jesus does deserve our unblemished praise and it is a celebration of sorts, this story when it originally happened is actually a sad story because the people are cheering on a fantasy. They assume that their messianic hero will bring a national victory to Jerusalem. They assumed that Jesus and his movement was there to serve their purposes and their own agenda, and they couldn't be further from the truth. In Luke's account of this story, we actually find out that Jesus weeps in the triumphal entry. Why did he weep? He he wept because they don't understand. Because Jesus knows that within the generation, within the next half century, Rome is going to come in in 70 AD and they are going to destroy this city and they are going to lay waste to the temple. And there's not going to be a single stone left unturned from the temple. Jesus is saying, you don't, you don't know. You don't realize that I'm not here to do what you think I'm here to do. You do not understand. And according to verse 16 in our passage, Jesus' own disciples, his closest followers, didn't even fully understand in this moment. It says that they didn't understand these things. What are these things that the text refers to? Well, it's, it's the events of the day. It's all the events of the day. 
Right? Because in their mind, there's some confusion here. There's a paradox of sorts. How can a conquering king liberate us without drawing a sword? How can a, a, a conquering war uh, king lead us in victory on a donkey instead of a war horse? How can someone overcome without a use of force? This is a confusing matter. Even up until the point that Jesus is arrested, Peter, one of Jesus's closest friends, draws his sword, lops off the ear of one of the high priest's servants. He's ready for a fight. And Jesus says, Peter, what are you doing? Put the sword away. I'm not here to fight. No, we're here to lay down our life. And so back in our passage, verse 16, when does illumination occur to the disciples? They didn't understand these things, but at some point they do understand these things. So when does the light click on for them? When were they brought to understanding? Verse 16 says they came to understanding when Jesus was glorified. When was Jesus glorified? Well, for a normal king, his glorification would occur when he was lifted up on a throne at his coronation. Jesus, although not a normal king, was lifted up. But he wasn't lifted up on a throne. He was lifted up on a cross with a sign above his head posted, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. There is a marriage between his death and his glorification. One, one commentator says that the cross, although is mostly a mark of humiliation, to die on the cross, to die on a cross for a criminal, was, it was an act of humiliation. The commentator says in this instance, though, with Jesus, it's not a place of humiliation, but actually a place of glory. And his glorification actually continues. It doesn't end just at the cross. It continues three days later when Jesus walks out of the tomb alive and well. We sang the verses before the sermon. His body began to breathe. And that is his glorification, his death and his resurrection. And so for the disciples, Jesus' death and resurrection makes sense of it all. And for us, when I say Jesus' death and resurrection makes sense of it all, I'm not just talking about these things in our passage in this particular event. No, Jesus' death and resurrection makes sense of it all. All of it. It makes sense of all the scriptures that are all pointing to one man being Jesus. It makes sense of all history. All the way back to the very beginning, when sin entered the world, when death entered the world because of sin, and God had to separate himself from Adam and Eve because he was perfect, but he promised them. He gave them an oath. He made a covenant with them that he had a plan. He had a way to redeem mankind. He had a plan to fix what we broke in our sin. He had a way for us to overcome the death that we brought upon ourselves. But it involved the giving of his one and only son, Jesus, who willingly submits to death so that he could in turn overcome it and overcome it for all of those who have put their trust in Jesus. You see, Jesus told his oppressors, the people that are him, he said, you don't, you guys don't take my life. 
you can't. If I wanted to fight, you'd be in trouble. No, you don't take my life. I lay it down. I give it willingly on my own accord and by my own authority. Jesus says, I am your king. I am your liberator. I will save you, but I am saving you from a far greater enemy than any sort of political oppression. I am saving you from your own sin, which leads to death. And the only way to make sense of this paradox, that this coming conquering king, this coming liberator rides in on a peaceful donkey in submission, is to come to grips with the fact that Jesus isn't fighting political oppression with Rome as the enemy in this moment. He's fighting death itself. His true and ultimate enemy is different than the crowds anticipated. And his true and ultimate kingdom that he has come to establish is far beyond any geographical boundaries on a map. And Jesus doesn't battle with war horses and chariots and bows, but rather submits to death, giving into it and then conquering it and displaying dominion over it. What a strange concept. This is why in our setting that any sort of Christian nationalism is not the answer. The gospel is the answer. The gospel is the answer because it's the gospel that makes sense of all of our brokenness and all of our hurt and all of the pain that comes with living in a broken structure. It's the gospel. At the beginning of our time today, I painted a picture of two trains, two forces traveling towards each other at maximum speeds and an imminent head-on collision. Five days later, after these events, the trains do collide. There is a cataclysmic clash at the cross, and it's the climax of all history as the ultimate forces of good and evil slam into each other. But in such ironic fashion, You would think momentum would stop for both of them. Jesus' momentum actually doesn't stop in this moment, as you might assume, but it actually increases. Jesus' death propels him, slingshots him into further glory. You think through that and that paradox, and we find that the cross is not some sort of inconvenient obstacle or minor setback that serves as a hindrance to Jesus' mission. It is the mission. And with such momentum that the cross propels Jesus' glory, here we are 2,000 years later, and his message is still going strong and picking up steam until the day he returns. And the message remains the same. Jesus has called on us even today. Would you lay down your arm? and pick up your cross. Just as Jesus submitted to death, would you submit to him and call on him to forgive you for all the ways you've ever fought against him in your sin? Because that's really what it is. In our life, prior to knowing Christ, we are at war with him. And we have picked up arms and we are using all the weapons in our arsenal to fight against God and to fight against our sin. And Jesus says, just drop the weapons. Lay down your arms. Submit to me. And I promise 
Jesus has promised that those who humbly submit to him as Lord and Savior will rise from the dead, just as he did. And those that are in Christ can behold the King in all of his glory, who sits on his throne forever in a proper sense. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ's kingship. We thank you, Lord, that he has not vacated the throne. I pray, Father, that the Spirit would move in our midst now and bring us into proper understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do for us personally, uh, for the world, but also for us personally, Father. Would we not leave this place um, without considering the ramifications of our choice to either fight against you or willingly submit to you? I pray, Lord, that the lights would come on, just like it did for the disciples when they saw the risen Jesus, when they saw that he was crucified and with them physically, Lord, they were brought into proper understanding. And through that proper understanding of Jesus, they now have a relationship with you. They are in your presence. And would it be so for us as well, Lord? We are thankful and we give you glory as we praise King Jesus. In your holy name I pray. Amen.